Welcome to Once and Future Authors, Changing Lives One Book at a Time. I'm Stephanie Larkin, an author, independent publisher, and book coach. And each week we will be discussing processes and strategies to get your book finished and published and meet authors and publishing experts to tap into their experiences and expertise. There is one book out there that can change your life, and that is the book you write. So welcome aboard. This podcast is produced by Red Penguin Books, an independent publishing company working with authors of all genres. Whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or perhaps even hundreds of handwritten sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, visit redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Welcome to the show. I am so delighted to be joined by author Michael Vecchione today, author of Crooked Brooklyn and Behind the Murder Curtain. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Oh my God, I'm like scared to go any place after reading these books. Yeah, well, they um, they do frighten people who are not used to the you know the the subject matter that's part of those books. Yeah, but, this um, one especially scared the living daylights out of me. But well, <laughs> you know that's one that really touches home because it has to do with hospitals and. Um, and everybody either has been in a hospital, is going to a hospital, exactly. or has a relative in a hospital. So it's, uh, I tell people now when they go in to, um, to basically be careful about what happens when you have a nurse come in in the middle of the night with medication or with a, with a, a syringe of some kind and make sure that you ask a lot of questions and family members ask a lot of questions because I think the, you're uh, right. The murderers in that book really this took is, advantage yeah. of it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely horrible. So, yeah. so let's start at the beginning. How did you get started in writing? Well, I was a prosecutor. A lawyer. I'm a lawyer. And um, I was a prosecutor for 30 of the 40 years that I'd been a lawyer. And um, I... So you've seen everything. Yeah, I have, basically. <laughs> I've done everything and I've seen everything. And I've done all kinds of cases. I was a trial lawyer most of my career. And the last... I would say 13 years I was in charge of the rackets division in the Brooklyn DA's office. And um, we had a very, very busy uh, operation. Um, and, you know, the stories that, that I, or the cases that I did, were stories that stuck in my head. And, um, and I knew that I wanted to do something with them once I finally finished working at the DA's office. Right. And um, a buddy of mine, my co-author, uh, Jerry Schmetterer, was the public information officer at the Brooklyn DA's office. And we went to lunch one day. We used to go to lunch every day. And we would talk <laughs> about what would go on because he would have to explain to the public and to the press what I was doing in my cases, oh, you know, in the, in the rackets division. So we kind of developed this, this, um, this professional lunch thing. And then it turned into a really deep friendship. And we were sitting around one day and one of these cases had just broken and we had just finished uh, another one. And he said to me, you know, Mike, when we get finished here, we really need to do this as a book. We had seven years in a row of what I call the corruption investigation in which we um, locked up, convicted, sent to jail three Supreme Court judges, a, um, an assemblywoman, the third ranking member of the New York State Assembly, an assemblyman, um, a, a defrocked, I call him defrocked, but a license, a, a, no longer had a license, a dentist who was basically stealing body parts from cadavers oh, because he had lost his... He had lost his license. He was actually a, a drug addict and was performing oral surgery uh, under the influence of Demerol when he essentially fell asleep in the middle of the operation. Oh my God. And that was the end of his career. 
but he was living the high life, a very, very well-respected uh, dental surgeon, living the high life. He now needed to, to maintain his high life. Right. So he realized that people always, always need implants. People have tooth implants, and, okay. and, and he knew that those came from bone, and there was a very, very short supply of that. So he had developed this operation where he was going to essentially cut deals with members of families who had loved ones who had died. He'd be at the nursing, at the uh, funeral home and ask them if they would sign off on him harvesting bone and tissue from them. You know how many people said yes? No one. So he then went out on his own, cut I'm deals. Glad to hear that, yeah, by the nobody. Way. So then he went out on his own and cut deals with funeral directors who he would pay off to have at the body before it went to the either cremation stage or to the embalming stage for a wake. And what they would do is he and his cohorts would, would steal the bone. They steal were actually the stealing bones yes. from dead bodies? Yes, and then they would fill in the place where the bone was with PVC pipe oh, so that when the, the, the loved one was in the, in the casket, it wouldn't look like they had no, no arms right. and no legs. Uh, and, um, and, and we uncovered that very, very strangely. Someone bought a nursing, uh, uh, I keep saying nursing home, excuse me, a funeral home in Brooklyn. And they realized when they did, looked at the books that the person who sold the nursing home, the, the funeral home to them um, had not paid them for these prepaid funerals. There was about 30 or $40,000 worth of prepaid funerals that were not, given was not turned over to the right. new owners. Right, as part of the business yes. deal. Yes, so she went to the police. The police um, came to us in rackets because the cops don't necessarily do white collar crimes. Yeah. They came to us and as the assistant DA who was interviewing this, this new owner of the, of the funeral home was talking to her, she just in passing said, you know, I was upstairs in this strange room in the nursing, in the, uh, in the funeral home and I touched the cadaver in the, in the, uh, on, the, on the table that they were preparing, and it was, as she used this word, squishy. So she said, what's going on? And then someone told her that they were harvesting bone and tissue. So she was the new owner yes. and didn't know that Correct. in her, now Correct. she owns it, funeral home, that they were That's stealing correct. the bones. Yes, she did not know that. And she didn't come to us with that as the problem. She came because she was out $30,000. Well, you know, this is pretty much right. human nature, right? So when the assistant DA walks into my office and he said to me, Mike, here's what we have. We have this woman who feels that she's embezzled out of 30000 but there's this other aspect. I don't know what to do with it. What should we do? I said, his name was Josh. I said, Josh, forget the $30,000. <laughs> yeah. Let's start an investigation into the bone and tissue. Oh, my God. Gosh. We opened up 1,100 cases, just of Brooklyn alone, um, of which 11 bodies were exhumed because we had enough information to exhume the bodies. And sure enough, when we ultimately locked them up, and there are pictures in Crooked Brooklyn of this, we, we, when, we went to, when the body was taken to the, um, to the ME's office to, um, to check and see whether or not there, were, there was PZC pipe in the, in the body, sure enough, there was. And the, the x-rays looked like Frankenstein um, had been on the table and, and Dr. Frankenstein was putting together oh the, um, you know, the, body, the legs and the arms. In fact, in order for the leg to, the leg, the fake leg now, the, right, the, right. the pipe, to um, stay attached or the foot to stay attached to it, what they did was they put a bolt through the pipe 
through the foot, the ankle of the foot, right. and, then a, um, and then a nut on the other end so that it would stay together. And when you look at the x-ray, you see that <gasps> bolt and nut So it holding. really did look like Frankenstein. Oh, it really did. It really did. So um, the, the, the defendant went to jail. We convicted him. Glad to hear it. Yes, he went to jail. He got uh, 64 years in jail. Oh, my God. He was in jail for about three or four years, and he died while in jail. And this is really karma. He died of bone cancer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was, it, it, it was a case that, um, that made national oh, and it, international of course. headlines. We I had can only imagine. The press conference to announce the indictment at the DA's office was covered all over the world, literally all over the world. It was, it was unbelievable because he had operations set up in Russia. He had operations set up in other states. And the Russian thing was very interesting. He, was, he had cut a deal with the Russian prison system to take the dead bodies, that the prisoners who had died in, in the Russian prison system, into his own custody, take them into Germany where he had this, this I guess, uh, some kind of a lab or some kind of a, a cutting place, and he was going to harvest all of the bone and tissue from these people without any kind of permission. So it was a, it was a, a case that certainly I will never forget. And, I, I uh, certainly see why you and your friend over lunch said, we got to write the book. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. And that's on the heels of all of the other things, which is the judge, the judges. And, you know, we put a, a camera, we had a piece of information that a judge was taking money to fix divorce cases. And um, a woman came to us and said, I think this is what's happening. And we had, we, we first kind of tapped the, the phone of the lawyer who we believed was behind all of this. And uh, we got enough information to be able to tap the judge's phone, put a camera and video recording device into his chambers, and watched him for the next two months commit crime after crime, take money, fix cases, no. etc. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that led to another case, which led to another case, and seven years later, I was totally exhausted and. Uh, <laughs> And I had yet another one to try. I will never forget this. A judge said to me, we're going to try this, this new case um, you know, next month. And I said, I'm not doing it, Judge. And he said, <laughs> I have not stopped for literally seven years. Right, he said, right. I'm going on vacation. I'll be ready to try it in the fall. I came back and, and tried the case. So it was, a, um, it was quite, a, quite a You know, with a job like that, years. you don't actually have to watch TV, do you? No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> In fact, it's funny. When, when I sit and watch TV, there's not... There are many, many shows and many, many movies that have aspects of the show and of the movie that I have had firsthand knowledge right, of. Right, right. And say, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, that's not what happened when I did it. Well, that, that kind of thing. You right, know? But right, right. Hollywood has to make it easy for the viewer to understand as opposed to, you know, us with, you know, the way that we did things legally and, right. and according to, uh, to procedure, et cetera. Yeah, and they so. also have to fit it into an hour. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. But, the, but, that, so. but that bone snatching dentist, that definitely has to be on TV at some Well, point. you know, we are keeping our fingers crossed. We have, uh, we very, very close to a TV deal for Crooked Brooklyn, which Fantastic. is the book that has these yeah. stories in it. This is Crooked Brooklyn. Huh? That's Crooked Brooklyn. Um, yeah. There are there are many there are many great stories in it. Oh there. my gosh! Stories. And true, which is all of them true. Frightening. All of them are true. I, I had a contract put out on my head by uh, by mafia guys, and I had had bodyguards, and um, and it, it was very very um, not the typical reason for someone to put a hit out on 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 a prosecutor. The reason was very simple. I convicted the um this this mafia associate 
And on the day of his sentence, I had a young assistant DA with me working on the case. And I said to her, why don't you stand up and do the sentence? It's a good experience for you. You'll know how to do this. So she did. Later on, I would say maybe two, three weeks later, I get a call from our chief investigator. Right. And he calls me on the phone and he says, Mike, someone wants to kill you. Oh, God. I said, what are you, crazy? He said, no, someone wants to kill you. He said, how do, I said, how do you know that? Come up to the office. I went up to his office. He had an informant there who was in jail with this guy that I had convicted. He said that this guy, his name was D'Amico, the guy that wanted to kill me. He said he has a contract out on you. He said, in fact, I was taking the contract. If I had gotten out of jail, I was going to take the contract. So I said to him, after we were able to settle everything and, and calm everything down and we were <laughs> able to put it, put, it, put it to rest, I said to him, Why, what, did, what happened? Because he was convicted? He goes, no. He said, you had that little girl stand up and do the the sentence and he said that you disrespected him by having this young no. woman. Yeah. So that led to the hit being put out on me. It led to me being having bodyguards. It led to my father having to be taken back and forth. I was living with my dad at the time. Right. Back and forth to work by a detective. My sons had flags put on the um, on their their license plates on their cars because if someone ran the plate, they wanted to make sure that we got information. Right. That was what my life was like for, um, for a period of time. And I, was, I, had a, I had a brand new, I just started dating someone who happened to be an assistant DA at the time. <laughs> and she totally understood, but you know, we went to the movies and there were detectives there. We went to a restaurant, there were detectives there. Wow. In fact, I was at a restaurant in Manhattan that is frequented by some wise guys and some cops mm -hmm. and some law enforcement agents, et cetera. And I knew the owner. And I go there one night and two detectives, female detectives were with me and they were sitting outside. And he said to me, Mike, what's going on? So I tell him the story. He said, you know what? I could take care of this for you. He said, you want me to make sure that this guy doesn't bother you ever again? Because I know people who can oh, take gosh. care of this. <laughs> I know people. I, I said to it. him, no, it's okay. Don't worry. We, gotta, we have it under control. So, so that is wow. the, uh, the, uh, the crux of, uh, of Crooked Brooklyn. And um, I was not a very uh, popular guy, particularly after locking up three judges and two assembly people. And um, it, it, was, um, it, was the, it was time for me to, uh, to go. And it made it easy. My, my boss, the DA, lost the election. So I was not going to stick around to have somebody say, we don't need you any longer. Right, so right. I retired. And, and then Jerry and I sat down and, and Wrote Crooked Brooklyn. Fantastic. So, yeah. In between, so after we finished that, we decided we had a little lull before we got to Murder Curtain. Right. And we we did a couple of short stories, also based on um, on my cases. Okay. One that's very interesting is you have the. I was going to ask you about day, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hand of the Killer. During the late '90s, there was a an incident in Brooklyn in, that involved the uh, the killing by a rabbi of a of a young boy. They ran over him in the, oh, in the street. That. It was riots occurred in Crown Heights and uh, and there was a, a young man who was a Jewish young man walking in the street that night and he was killed as well and that case was tried in Brooklyn I supervised it I was not I didn't try the case and the case was lost we we did not win that case wow. there was, it was a uh, it was an acquittal but in the aftermath of that there was another murder in Brooklyn a young Hasidic woman was coming home from her from shopping and she was bringing the groceries into her uh, apartment and um, she lived in an apartment that was a few steps, like a brownstone kind of house, okay. so up a few steps, and then she had the door, she would put the groceries on the floor, and she had a young, a young two-year-old uh, child with her. 
And while she was um, unloading the groceries, somebody came into the, into the hallway behind her, the foyer of her apartment, and um, stabbed her 37 times <gasps> and killed her. Laying. And when the police got there, there was above the body a palm print in blood. Oh my gosh. So they called me on the phone. I was, um, I was uh, in, obviously in the, in the office and <laughs> they said, Sounds um, like you're always there in the what office. do you want to do? What do you want to do? I said, cut the wall out and take the whole piece. Right. If we ever find this guy, we're going to need to compare it to right. whoever it is. And to, um, again, make a very long story short, we did find someone when he was arrested. He had a, a young baby, he was in his, in his sister's home. He had a young baby in his arms. It was some kind of birthday party. And um, he had a, um, he, when, he was, when he was taken back to the precinct, he had a pacifier in his pocket, a baby's pacifier. All the cops and detectives thought it must have been this kid who was in his arms. They asked me again, what do you want us to do with it? I said, voucher it, which means safeguard it, put it into the property clerk's office for safekeeping. Okay. You never know. So we um, ultimately have enough evidence to indict him. We go to, uh, we go to court. And while we're in court, the, um, I say to the judge, I would like to have his blood taken so that I can compare the DNA from his hand to the blood that's on the wall. Right. And see if I can really nail him. Um, so we do that. And as luck would have it, the DNA, his DNA does not match the DNA in the blood. Really? So now I've handed the defense a, uh, a defense, and the yeah. defense was that someone else did this. There was, uh, it was the wife's, the, I'm sorry, it was the deceased blood, but someone else's blood mixed in, in that palm print. So I was now, I had a dilemma. I didn't know what to do. Right. So I, I called the medical examiner's office, and I had a friend of mine who was in charge of the serology lab there, does the DNA, the blood work, et cetera. And I called him, and his name was Bob Shaler. And I said, Bob, this is, my, this is my problem. So he says, tell me all of the facts. So I do. I tell him everything. And um, he said, uh, hmm, what, let, let's talk about that, that pacifier. I said, okay. Um, you told me that there was a young woman, a young baby or a two-year-old in the apartment with her mother when she was killed. Yes. Um, and did she have a pacifier? I said, I don't know. I'll ask, you know, I'll ask her, her father. So as it turns out, the kid was, the kid did have a pacifier. The pacifier was nowhere to be found. It was a pink pacifier that was found on the person of the, of the defendant. Um, so I said, well, how does that, how is that gonna help me? He said, go back and ask the father if the kid had a runny nose or a cold of some kind, and I did. And the father said, yeah, how did you know that? I said, well, I didn't know, I'm asking. So Shayla said to me, have the little girl come in, the father come in, we'll take blood from both of them, and we'll see if the missing DNA right. is hers or his. Okay. So we eliminated the father. Turns out the DNA was, the missing DNA was the little girl's DNA. How did it get up there? The defendant, when he came into the, into the apartment before he killed the, the, the mother or right after he killed the mother, he took the pacifier out of the little girl's mouth, put it into his pocket. Okay. Now his, the DNA from her, right, her, right. her snots, saliva, yeah. <laughs> his saliva and, right. and mucus, etc., now gets on his hand. When he touches the wall, 
with his, the mother's blood, blood all over. there's DNA from the pacifier mixed into that now. Right. And that's why the mother and the little girl's past, uh, DNA was on the wall. And when I called the father into the office, when I finally got the pacifier out of the police property clerk's office, right. the one that was recovered in his pocket, I'll never forget this. I was in my, at my desk. I put the pacifier on my desk and I called him in. And I sat him down and I said, I have to ask you a question. Before he said anything to me, he said, that's my daughter's pacifier. We've been looking for that. Where did you get that from? He testifies, guy goes away for oh, the rest of his life. My gosh. The defense thought that they were going to win the case because they now had this, this defense. This palm print which yeah, was the wrong blood. Someone else right. was involved, you know. So. So that is um, that is the subject matter of Hand of the Killer, wow. and when hand, when that Hand of the Killer, Hand of the Killer, of the and killer. it's available on Amazon. Right. It's a, sh a short story. One of those. That's got to be a cents. movie too. Yes, That's it's crazy. great. We we um, it, it it was it was a terrific case, a case that I will I'll never forget because there was some other you know other interesting things about how we found out who this guy was. Um, right. He had been on the street uh, talking to people, and and these young these women were a very very frightened of him. They didn't know what his, uh, you know, why he was on the street. He was kind of asking crazy questions. He was a sexual deviant and what he wanted to do, what he did, I won't get into what he did, but he was, uh, he apparently had done that to this woman oh. because her pantyhose were all, were all shredded as right, well. Right. And we found another woman in the area who said the same thing had happened to her, but obviously she lived. She didn't, right. she didn't die. He, he had done something to her, which was very similar to what uh, he had done to uh, to the deceased in this case, and we put him in a lineup, and he got picked out by the people on the street without any problem, and then we were left with this this dilemma that I created because I wanted to nail down the case as right. best I can. But you know what, Stephanie? As it turns out, it was much better because it was kind of like a a movie for the jury. They were all expecting, and the defense attorney was all expecting to be able to do this. And then right. we put the serologist on the on the stand, and he tells the story about how this could happen, oh and it fit gosh. with all of the facts in the case. So, um, so handed a killer is a, is a great story, and we won. Yes, and you we won. won. We won. Yeah. Wow. Twenty five. He, he got twenty five to life. He's probably still in jail, um, and it's uh, it was a uh, it was terrific. So we had to. We had to do that. That was one of the fillers between books. We right, did that, right. and another case that I did um, called "Murder on the Bridge," um, which was um, another really horrible murder case that I got when I first came back to the DA's office. It had been tried once before; they didn't get a conviction, and the DA gave me the case, and um, and I tried it. It was a murder of a of a young woman who was exercising to lose weight and she was walking unfortunately on the Williamsburg Bridge at an early morning uh, Sunday morning and some junkie grabbed her brought her down to a part of the bridge strangled her and uh, and killed her thinking she had money and she had no money on her right. but that wasn't enough he had to come back later with the help of a friend and they doused the body with gasoline oh and burnt it beyond recognition the way that we identified her is through dental, dental records the only thing left the only thing left of her at the scene was a shoe and a bra clasp. And I'll never, once again, it's one of these cases which I'll never forget. When I summed up, there was a, her, all of her young friends were in the audience with family members and they were watching. And, 
And I said, talked about her, and I ended with, she will never be able to, she'll never w push a baby carriage through the streets of Williamsburg. She'll never walk down the aisle with her father, etc. And all we have left of her, and I put the shoe on the jury rail and the, the bra, bra clasp on the jury rail. That's it. It's all we have left of her. And I turn around. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> People oh, were, I can imagine. were crying. I can imagine. So um, there was a case that really shook um, the community. And it was unsolved for almost a year. And the way it was solved was a completely strange way we had the girlfriend of this guy picked up for another case. Really? And she thought we were picking her up because we were asking her about the murder on the bridge case. Really? So the cops didn't know anything about this. So they get her in the car, they're bringing her to the precinct, and she says, so you want to talk to me about the murder of the little girl on the bridge? The cops looked around in the car and said, what? What are you talking about? We are talking about, he, by the way, this, this same guy killed his best friend um, for the money. He was a junkie. He killed his best friend, and she thought that was what they were getting oh her in the car for. And it turns out she was the break in the um, in the case. And she said, we're leaving town. In fact, we're leaving town today. So they set up this whole, uh, this meet. She was going to meet the guy, and when they were meeting, they were going to arrest him. And he snuffed, he smelled it out and 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 took off and ran through the streets of Williamsburg, and he, this, is not, this is a little funny part. He runs into this, 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 this brownstone, can't go in, he's, he's trapped now. The only place he can go is into a, uh, a crawl space above the, the living room of the top floor. And um, he crawls in, he thinks he's safe, except that it gives way, and he falls down into the bedroom of two people who are making love oh, gosh. <laughs> in that apartment. And... He now is caught. They right. catch him in, in, the, uh, in the apartment, right. and, and he was arrested. And um, he used to tell, he told the detectives that while he was in jail, or actually every night since he killed a little girl, she used to come to him in a dream really? and talk to her. And he was on the stand, and, and when he took the witness stand, he said that um, the cops made the whole thing up, the whole confession was made up. So I'll never, again, one of these things that I, I won't ever forget, I stood up the first time to cross-examine him, and the first thing I said to him was, did she come to you last night, Raymond? His name was Raymond Vargas. Right, right. Did she talk to you? Because you know that you're lying. You can't get away from her right. if you lie. And he was like, literally started to shake on the stand. Love it. And um, anyway, we convicted him. So, oh, my So that's gosh. Murder on the Bridge. It's also oh. available on Amazon. I'm telling and, um, you, I'm getting chills yeah, it's, just it's, hearing this. It was, a, it was a very, very, it was a fun career. So um, it was, also all of that stuff is my thing. Mur uh, Murder Curtain is not. Murder Curtain is about a guy that we met who was an investigator for the... So this wasn't your case? This no, was... no, no. That's, those cases belong to a guy named Bruce Sackman. Okay. He was... He was uh, an investigator for the uh, VA, the Veterans okay. Administration. He covered the whole Northeast. And he gets a call one day. He's sitting in his office. He did white-collar stuff. That's right, right. all he did. He didn't have any idea what a murder case was. And he gets a call from a doctor at a, at a, a VA hospital out on Long Island to, and says, that I saw a TV show last night about some doctor in the Midwest who was killing people. He works here now. I think he's <laughs> killing people here, too. <laughs> so he gets in his car, drives out to Long Island, and... Um, interviews the, the doctor. The next day, before they could go back and, 
and re-interview him, the doctor took off. Oh, you know, you don't, you don't blame yeah. him, do you? You know where he went? He went to Africa. He wound up, as, as the book talks about how he killed 60 people in the United States in various places. Wow. He wound up in Africa killing 60 people. He loved death. Oh my he God. loved to watch people die. In fact, what he used to do is he would inject this succinylcholine, which is a, a stops your heart or, or makes it race so fast that it, that it can't handle it. And he would watch as, sit at the bedside. He'd pull the murder curtain around and sit at the bedside and watch the monitor. Well, you have freaked me out enough for one night, but we're gonna have to have you back because you are filled with stories. We'll definitely have Michael back, but if you want to find out what's really going on in this city, check it out. And Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for being on with us. Thanks uh, so much. It was a pleasure. And thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us for Once in Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show, so your review could launch new books every day. Thanks again for joining us, and happy writing.